Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and hope that everybody enjoyed a great Memorial Day weekend and took a moment to remember all those who gave their lives in the service of their nation. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have struck a deal to avert a U.S. debt default, but will cap defense spending at FY24 levels without inflation adjustments. But global markets won't breathe a sigh of relief until this deal is approved by Congress. This as prominent senators call on Defense Secretary Austin to investigate charges of price gouging by defense contractors in the wake of a 60 Minutes report. Kinetic results and Airbus rules out a new version of its A3220 jetliner. China Eastern becomes the first Chinese airline to operate COMAX C919 jetliner on passenger service between Shanghai and Beijing. Riyadh Air wants at least 150 737 jetliners. Ukraine prepares to launch its offensive as some prominent Russian leaders worry about the future of the country in the wake of its bungled invasion. The Czech Republic has placed a $2.4 billion order for CV-90 combat vehicles. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocketron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Hope you all had a great holiday weekend, and thanks so very much for joining us. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us, Vago, as always. Yeah, great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And and again, a happy Memorial Day to you all. Uh, Ron, obviously, uh, the president, the House Speaker, and their staffs were very uh, busy. Uh, it's a holiday weekend. What are um, markets going to make of this deal when they open uh, tomorrow? I don't think a heck of a lot. If you look at S&P, uh, S&P futures, they're only up about 0.2%, um, which is sort of in the noise. Um, you know, the credit default swap spreads... Um, are looking to be somewhere in the mid fifties, high high fifties. That's about where they were a week ago. So, I mean, I think the market was thinking something like this would happen, uh, and you know, the market is still discounting in uh, just you know, you know, fifty eight basis point credit default swap spread is less than a one percent chance of a U.S. default, and that's largely what the market's been saying for a while. Is still is still thinking that, right? So, uh, that that that's most likely what will happen. And, and does the street see passage of this measure as a foregone conclusion, right? Because, you know, elements in both parties are very not happy with this deal. In, so, in some way or another, right, that it'll, it'll muddle through somehow. And, and I think what the street is, is saying is that, you know, the U.S. will not default on its debt, right? Somehow they'll, they'll force this through, um, even if it's a, a shorter term thing or, or something that something will happen. Um, so, so we'll see. And does it, does it help that it's around the Memorial day weekend that this was going on and people were more focused about, uh, on reopening their summer houses in the Hamptons? Yeah. Yeah. It might've, yeah, of course, you know, if you, you know, this kind of stuff going on when a lot of folks aren't in the office or even in the virtual office, um, yeah, it's helpful. Um, Sash, uh, what is the message that this sends, right? I mean, how are allies and partners looking at this? Because a lot of this debt is held by people in London and in the Netherlands and across Europe, among other places. Look, it's, um, this has to be good news because it sends a message that your political system is still functioning and that you as a, uh, you know, your political system can, can come to what foreigners regard as being a rational outcome. 
Um, clearly, some um, some other people might not be um, as sort of blasé about it as that. But that that you know that's a huge relief. Um, the risk has always been with this process that uh, confidence in the dollar is damaged much more deeply, even if it's fairly subtle, than uh, some of the participants expect, and that you don't get that sort of confidence back. I mean, there, there, there's been quite an interesting um, uh, series of articles in the Financial Times over the last couple of weeks, and, and, and actually also the London Times, and uh, looking at the effect of the uh, the very short-lived Liz Trust premiership last autumn, and just saying that the consequence of that was that the UK, and hence sterling, and hence UK interest rates, has acquired what's being politely referred to as a moron premium. Um, you don't want that. You really don't want that. No politician in the states should want a moron premium on your uh, on, on 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 your debt. And you've probably you pro hopefully you've avoided that. Well, we've been paying a moron premium uh, for anybody who's paying attention since 2010, uh, right, when we got downgraded from our AAA credit rating. Uh, so we've been paying a little bit of a moron premium, not just as big of a moron premium uh, that, that we uh, could have been. Um, it, 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 walk us through uh, the week on uh, European markets for the, the group. We have less inflation in the UK, uh, but we look like Germany may have tipped into uh, recession. Uh, you put a great note out. Kinetic has its earnings and you claim it is the AUKUS uh, play. Walk us through these uh, storylines uh, and how they impacted the week. Yeah, OK. I mean, it was actually it was a pretty lousy week for uh, European aerospace and defence stocks. Um, uh I would say that some of the corporate uh, commentary that came out was um, uh, was you know not particularly um, positive. We're going to talk about uh, eBase later on. There was a lot of profit taking as well um, going on. Um, and interesting, quite a lot of that profit taking was among the um, was among the defence stocks. So the defence stocks in our coverage in Europe traded down about four and a half percent. The civil stocks were down about three and a half percent. It was a you know it was a pretty pretty lousy end to the week. Um, and, uh, you know, the ones that stand out, uh, I suppose, interestingly, Leonardo and Hensolt are now starting to trade as a pair. Um, so one, one goes down, the other goes down and vice versa. And, you know, that makes some sense because Leonardo has a 25% strategic stake in Hensolt. They would clearly like to get more done. Hensold is sort of happy to have the stake, but wants to remain very, very proudly independent. So the, you know, the mood and music from the manage the two managements is very different. But um, Hensold was down seven percent, Leonardo down five percent. Um, those were pretty big falls for the week. Um, compare that with Airbus down about three percent, um, and uh, Safran down about three percent. You know, the 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 two big civil stocks in Europe definitely traded better. Kinetic, which is the, the UK-based but um, increasingly sort of US-focused uh, defense services and technology services company, actually had a, you know, it was pretty much the, the star performer last week. I mean, it was, it was only down a, a, a couple of points. And yeah, we, we refer to it as sort of the play on AUKUS. It's worth thinking, Kinetic's really got three home markets. UK, currently 50 to 60%. The US, where they've just done a big acquisition of a company called Avantis Federal Systems, or federal consulting business, um, now about uh, 35%, Australia about 20%, so sorry, sorry, 10, 15%. So overall, um, Kinetic CEO, Steve, uh, Steve Wade, is talking about 96% of this company's uh, revenues are within the AUKUS uh, framework. They're very, very excited about um, 
the, the, the sort of the two pillars of AUKUS that have, have been announced so far, but actually particularly the non-submarine one, where I think they see there being a lot, right. uh, a lot of potential. And what I found fascinating with, in terms of the, you know, the company's comments was how they described um, the management of, of ITAR, uh, because, you know, they had, they, they've had a big uh, US and uh, UK business for some time. Um, Australia is becoming more and more important. Uh, and I actually asked, you know, surely ITAR makes it very difficult to transfer technology. And they said, actually, no, it doesn't. You've got to, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be very, very careful indeed. But if so much of your business is inside what is now the AUKUS triangle, um, it's much less problematic than if you are a big defense manufacturing company, which also has 30% of its exports to you know, Saudi Arabia or India or something like that, where I think the US naturally worries about technology leakage. So overall, you know, it was a very, very upbeat, uh, a very upbeat statement. They've raised their you know, long-term guidance. I mean, they're aiming to get to uh, three, uh, three billion or more of revenues um, uh, for four years out, and they're growing in high single digits. High single digits, organic growth. I stripping out in, um, inflation and uh, uh, foreign exchange is pretty, pretty much at the top end of the companies we're looking at at the moment, uh, and that was that was well received. Um, and uh, in terms of uh, broader German economic news, and what does that mean, right? I mean, it said that when Berlin catches a cold, everybody else has a bad time of it. What does this mean? Because on the one hand, from a, a defense spending, uh, from a defense standpoint, Germany is actually doing well with the Titan vendor uh, and, and what it's going to mean over the long term. What's what's the this, this sense about sort of broader economic headwinds and what that means for the defense and aerospace group in Europe? I I think it's sometimes very difficult to separate out economic headwinds from political headwinds uh, in Europe. Um, you know, Germany had a pretty strongly growing economy. At the moment, it's probably the least strong growing economy in Europe, but it had a pretty strongly growing economy. And, and the political headwinds meant that defence spending was constrained. Currently, it's, it's the other way around. So the, the Germans we've talked to don't see the economy as being what limits the pace of defence spending and the pace of the expansion of uh, defense spending at the moment. And you quite rightly point to the Zeitgemender and the the ten sorry the 100 billion euro special funds that uh, the, the government has put aside. The issue there is the politics um, and almost the bureaucracy of how does Germany, which historically has had parliamentary sign-off line by line of every single contract over 25 million euros, how do you go from, from that where you know, the Bundestag spends weeks signing off what we would regard as being chump change contracts in defence terms to spending 100 billion extra over even three, four years or so. The system isn't set up for that. And so I think it's the, the politics is the bigger problem in Germany at the moment than the, than the economic, paradoxically. It may be that the two meet in the middle. Um, let me, uh, uh, Richard, you've been very patient, but uh, very quickly, I uh, neglected to ask uh, Ron uh, for the week and how the group uh, performed uh, on Wall Street against broader market uh, trends. Uh, Ron, we've been obviously very debt focused, but just give us a sense on how the group performed on Wall Street over the past week. Yeah, so over the past week, you know, the S&P was just up a bit, um, 32 basis points. Um, and then the group pretty had a pretty yeah, meh week. Um, but Boeing fared the best down uh, about a percent, North down a little over percent, GD down 3%, Lockheed down over percent, Raytheon down about 3%. And that's, I think, a Raytheon specific thing having to do with the gear turbofan. Um, when you look at the business jet uh, companies we cover, uh, with eBay's going on this week, 
Embraer was up about 3%. Textron was down about 3%. Bombardier was down almost 7%. Uh, WTI uh, crude and Brent crude were about the same where they've been the last couple of weeks. Low 70s, mid 70s, respectively. Uh, the VIX around 18 has been about where it's been. So a lot of those metrics have been holding pretty steady. Uh, the real champ of the week uh, was this Palantir Technologies. They, you know, uh, Palantir has been really identified as an AI play and we're in the, the midst of uh, what one of our strategists calls a, a baby bubble in uh, AI stuff. So uh, Palantir has uh, benefited from that. And we've gotten a lot of incoming calls from investors asking, does company A, B or C do anything in AI? So uh, I don't know, AI is sort of like the new cybersecurity uh, play. And a quick word from our sponsors, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communication sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air uh, warfare coverage. Uh, Richard, um, how big an issue uh, are these price gouging stories that we're seeing? There was a report uh, by Bloomberg's uh, ace reporter, Tony Capasio, that according to a congressionally mandated report he got his hands on, Boeing refused to give uh, the Pentagon cost data on uh, 10,700 replacement parts between October 2020 and September 21 that constituted 97% of refusals uh, by all contractors uh, during that period. Then uh, there was a note where five prominent senators wrote uh, uh, Defense Secretary Austin uh, calling for him to investigate uh, uh, the price gouging in the in the wake uh, of a 60 Minutes report that had the former Pentagon's uh, the Pentagon's former director uh, of procurement policy Shea Assad uh, talking about you know some very mundane components you know that were put into weapon systems uh, and and at uh, exorbitant uh, prices in the 1980s stories about $1,200 hammers and $600 toilet seats really did change the defense debate. Do you think this is one of those moments? Because, you know, on the Washington show, we discussed that this was kind of perfectly timed uh, by, by by some to sort of impact the defense debate. What, what's your sense on all this? Yeah, I, I'm just not seeing it, I'm afraid. Uh, and, it, you know, good reporting, and it's important for Congress to keep oversight on these things. But, you know, you look at the history of uh, defense reform, you know, as the saying goes, uh, you see headlines on defense reform going back to the Civil War. And it's the same with price gouging on spare parts and all this other stuff. You know, again, some of it probably legitimate. But of course, you look at the history of defense spending relative to these headlines. Does it change the terms of debate? Yeah, arguably it does. Does it change defense? Certainly not. You know, I mean, you look at the metrics that drive defense uh, and there are no metrics. You compare it with GDP, with debt, with anything. Um, nope, nothing to do with economics. It's purely threat and perception of threat and politics. Now, what's sort of interesting here is that if anything, the anti-defense crowd seems to be more on the right, you know, the sort of Tea Party anti-support for Ukraine crowd. Uh, that is a new dimension, but actually, I think that helps because they're the ones who are least likely to care about this kind of report. Whereas the left, they're going to say, "All right, yeah, no, it, this is this is a very serious situation with Ukraine, and uh, we've got to keep going." I, I just don't see this as being any kind of meaningful threat. Also, you know, you've got the defense companies, and for the most part, they're going to be able to report to aggregate profit margins that aren't terribly obscene. You know, you know, it's you might have individual line items where you know the eight hundred dollar hammer, or whatever else, 
there's going to be all kinds of, uh, you know, gnashing of teeth and rending of garments over that sort of thing. But if you look at aggregate profit margins, they're not what you call extortionate. You know, so I, I just don't think there's going to be very much of an upshot to this uh, this announcement. Um, and I should uh, point out uh, that uh, Boeing says, uh, or at least at the time that I checked late last week, the company said that it hadn't seen uh, the report and takes seriously its commitments uh, to the U.S. government and and to uh, taxpayers. Um, Ron, what's what's your sense on how this will uh, impact stuff, right? I mean, a, a friend of mine sort of pointed out that, look, I mean, the industry's compensation levels are dramatically different today than, than they were. So, the, you know, like a lot of money can get consumed uh, that way and it's perfectly allowable and, and you have relatively, you know, kind of cap your margins. Obviously, you're doing share buybacks, uh, which is another way to expend uh, your your capital. I mean, what's what's your sense on how this Sort of affects the debate, or 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 doesn't affect the debate. Uh, you know, three of the lawmakers are uh, liberal Democrats uh, who who are making the call. Although Chuck Grassley uh, is a very prominent uh, member and a, a Republican of of some uh, you know solid conservative credentials, who's also uh, signed on to that letter. I mean, what's what's your sense? Yeah, I think a couple thoughts on this. Um, one, did you actually break any rules? So, um, and what I mean by that is, is right. it your intellectual property? Is it the government's intellectual property? Of these parts, uh, what was the, the price level? Where did they fall under the Truth and Negotiating Act? You know, could a company <clears throat> as large as Boeing have nearly 11,000 parts that uh, they own the intellectual property on that fall under the Truth and Negotiating Act? Yeah, sure, conceivably. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, don't, I don't know enough about right. the parts. Um, but if they didn't, then then it it you know, it, it bears more investigation, right? Because uh, if the government owns intellectual property and the price of these things at a certain level, they're, you know, they're, they're bound to do that. It's part of their contracting terms. They have to do that. So, so we'll see, right? I mean, so you, you need, I guess you need the whole story. Um, you know, one of the companies that we follow gets picked on all the time on this Transdime, uh, but as Transdime has said, and it and, and is the case, they don't break any laws. I mean, it's their intellectual property and a lot of what they do, you know, falls under certain price levels and they can price it however they want. And, you know, if the Pentagon likes that or not, that's just the way it is because they own the IP and, uh, you know, Transdime didn't write the law. Um, so it, it just really kind of depends on the situation. And then I would argue this, and this would probably not make me very popular in the defense contracting community, but I'll say it anyway. Um, the way defense contracting is done from, I would say a value perspective is is kind of wrong, meaning that who cares what your margins are, right? So let me give you an example. If you have to invest a hundred billion dollars to get a billion dollars, or if you have to invest five hundred dollars to get a billion dollars, the five hundred billion, the five hundred dollar investment is much better, right? So and that how much you invest isn't measured by your margin, right? Your margins measured relative to your sales. So kind of your return on truly invested capital would probably be the most fair and most equitable way to measure defense contracts. And that's not how it's done. It's done by, by margins. And I think we all kind of know most defense contractors don't invest a heck of right. a lot in their programs. So even though their margins don't seem that high relative to the risk they take, they're actually pretty generous. Um, and I'm, I'm not weighing it well, one way or another, right? I mean, I'm just asking you guys whether or not it changes the political dynamic uh, in, in Washington at, at this point. My expectation is not really at this point, uh, right? And, and I should note that, you know, even though the debt deal freezes government-wide spending, defense is going to go up 
uh, right to the 20, the administration's FY24 plan, but inflation is running higher. So it's considered by some to be an effective cut, even though it's the one on part of the budget uh, that's a uh, discretionary part of the budget that's going to go up. Richard, you, you've got your hand up. Yeah, just uh, sort of following on to what Ron said, I think this will probably, if anything, increase calls for uh, greater use of uh, open architecture to allow for that intellectual property to accrue to DOD to maybe keep control. Will that make a difference in terms of, uh, you know, uh, aftermarket margins at that point, you know, when, say, NGAD comes of age and uh, the spare parts can be more, you know, well, openly competed because of you know intellectual property ownership by DOD? I don't know. You know, there's going to be an awful lot of subsystem uh, incumbency that just allows people to make better profits at that level. But on the other hand, it might. And if nothing else, it will definitely increase, you know, the drumbeat for that uh, that openness. Um, uh, Sash, just uh, really quickly coming to you, right? Uh, how do you see this from a European perspective and how do European governments uh, handle uh, this, uh, right? Because each one is sort of shackled to national champions in a way. I mean, we have national champions, but at least there's a little bit more choice uh, than there is, for example, in the UK, right? There's one combat aircraft maker, so it doesn't matter how good BAE is. I'm not criticizing BAE, right? Or Dassault or anybody else. They're the only games uh, in town. What, what's, what's the sense uh, when, when you see stories like this and how it is that the Europeans do it that may be you know, worth looking at or maybe drawing lessons from? It, look, we could, spend, <laughs> we could spend the rest of the show and next week talking about this. I'll, I'll give you three examples because I think uh, the UK, France and Germany have um, quite interesting different uh, views on this. UK, first of all, the UK distinguishes very clearly between uh, contracts where there was no competition available whatsoever. And um, those contracts, are, the margins are controlled. And it's margin, interestingly, although there is an element of uh, analysis of the return on capital, but tends to be the margin, by uh, an organisation called the Single Source Regulatory uh, Office. And that tends to cap margins, return on sales, uh, at high single digits. Some, uh, it, it, you know, there, there, there's a series of formulae um, but it tends to cap them at that. Uh, that SSRO does not tend to capture spare parts terribly well. Uh, it tends to focus on prime contracts um, and on very big service contracts where there is only a single uh, possible supplier. So, for example, you know, Babcock, which overhauls the Royal Navy submarines, owns, operates the only nuclear capable docks uh, and therefore all the contracts for um, the, the basic overhauls come under the SSRO. Um, BAE for Typhoon might, but then none of the spares, upgrades, overhauls, and so forth would. Um, outside single source, uh, so where there is any chance of competition, uh, and, and a huge amount of UK defence procurement, for better or for worse, is competed, then um, you, know, you may imagine that you can, uh, frankly, and the same goes for uh, same goes for spare parts. Go to France. France, I think, is way more sophisticated and mature. France owns a much bigger proportion of its defence industry than any other nation. Uh, the, you know, the French government has strategic stakes in Airbus, Safran uh, and Thales and implicitly ha you know, is a stakeholder in Dassault, even though Dassault is, is family controlled. Um, there, the French government has very clear views about um, not necessarily the profitability that the companies should make, but the deal, uh, the broader deal, which is um, 
how, how much flexibility is there in procurement, the degree to which companies will or will not um, uh, fluctuate uh, production volumes according to you know, whether the French government can afford it in a given year or not. Um, and so the French government isn't actually publicly terribly hung up about margins, uh, whether single source or not. They, but they do focus on much longer industrial uh, capacity issues and how to, how to manage the balance between the pri- what's, you know, what's, what's private sector and, and, and what's state. And I think they do it very well. Germany has not yet worked out how to do this. Uh, Germany doesn't have um, terribly strong regulations on profitability, um, but there is clearly much greater political pushback from uh, the left and centre-left parties on how much profit defence companies might make, because although we've talked about Zeitenbender, the turning point earlier on, that is still not politically completely accepted. Right. And I think if we started to see German uh, you know, defence companies making uh, what were regarded as being excessive margins, and those would probably be in the high, high teens plus. And again, margins are return on capital. I mean, Ron's point's really good, but politicians find it very hard to understand return on capital. So they go back to margins because that's easy to calculate. I think if we started to see German companies um, you know, making sustained very, very high margins at the taxpayers' euro, uh, the pushback would start to be very significant indeed. Um, we're going to uh, shift gears in a moment, and I ask the audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cabas Ships with Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own JJ uh, Gertler. Uh, Richard, uh, start us off. Turkish election, no surprise uh, that the right-wing parties uh, shifted their uh, support to Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, after uh, the first uh, round of voting against Kemal uh, Kilic Doroglu. Um, what does this mean for European defense and aerospace programs, right? Because there was this hope, uh, this is regarded as a win for Putin. Uh, obviously, Ankara now messaging that you know Erdogan is going to continue being tough man uh, in Turkey, but he is going to work to rebuild international uh, ties for what that's worth. Apparently, uh, uh, Turkey is going to be much more cooperative in a NATO context. All eyes are on whether or not Sweden is now uh, going to be uh, allowed uh, to join now that the election has passed them. Right at first, there was a sense uh, that um, Kilic Daroglu was was going to prevail. Uh, turned out not to be the case. Um, what does this mean for programs? Right, because everybody. You know, Turkey ended up leaving the F-35 program. There was a hope the S, you know, the the SAM issue would be resolved. Uh, obviously, um, everybody is courting Turkey. Certainly, the Tempest folks wanted Turkey to be part of the program, and did wanted Saudi to be part of the program. We discussed that some weeks ago. What's the impact from your standpoint? Yeah, it uh, has a very significant uh, read through to defense. I think because you know, part of the I guess one of the main pillars of his uh, his campaign was a, a kind of vainglorious techno-nationalism centered in part around aviation and defense. And, uh, you know, it's one of those classic defense industries where they have some capabilities, especially at the, the very top in terms of, uh, you know, airframe design and whatever. But in terms of subsystems, that's another story, which means this gets into the, the tricky issue of, well, economics, because you look at his economic policy so far, they've been your classic sort of Mussolini era top down. The only way to stop inflation is with lower interest rates. Everybody, let's have a party. That's the way it works. 
which of course produces you know a much greater level of inflation. So you're going to have all of these programs, all of them dependent upon imports of high-tech goods like say GE F110 engines, for example, or whatever else, or radars or what have you. And will they be able to afford them? Because uh, <laughs> inflation is going to be a very serious problem moving forward. Uh, and so they might find themselves with these indigenous programs that you'd think would be less expensive, but because of the nature of aerospace and how much you need to import from other countries, if you haven't been doing this for a very long time, uh, it might not be at all feasible. Uh, that's going to be a serious issue. Even program partnerships in Tempest or whatever else, or SCAF or what have you, are going to be problematic when they're asked to pay their share. It's going to be in, well, a slumping currency. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know, bad news, this removes any hope we had of them returning the rest 400 surface air missile systems that would allow them to rejoin the F-35 program. So there's also going to be a level of, you know, reliance upon equipment that's not quite up to snuff because I think there's this understandable reluctance to trust people who are operating with systems that have direct, um, direct information pipelines back to Russia. Uh, and God knows they might even follow, say, a couple of uh, other folks in, in considering China for a source on weapons, sort, you know, people in, in, the, in the Arab Gulf who've done that. So I think there's all kinds of complications. But in general, uh, if you're a real fan of emerging indigenous programs and perhaps untenable jetliner acquisition plans, another thing that's sort of a feature of the, the last days of his uh, first term, um, well, <laughs> that's uh, that's all good news, I guess, in a possibly unaffordable sort of way. Uh, Sash, your your sense on what all this means? I think we're going to well, I mean, we the West NATO are going to have to. I mean, going to have to come to terms with this, but I think we're going to have to come to terms with the fact that there will um, increasingly be a, uh, a a separate sort of NATO membership, which is at best semi-detached. I think it's going to be, I mean, you know, it may well be that Turkish officers will uh, continue to take appoint, uh, you know, take appointments at the highest levels of NATO and, uh, you know, they'll be in every headquarters and so forth. But I think the degree, you know, the degree to which Turkey might have to be, you know, to some extent firewalled from the, you know, the most sensitive, which means most actually, uh, NATO secrets and technologies and tactics and so forth, I think that's going to be how things will develop. Can Turkey afford to go wholly um, pro-Putin, pro-Xi? Probably not. And actually, I think that the risk for Turkey is that having been, you know, at least ambivalent about uh, Putin, um, that they, you know, were the, were the Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive to go well, Turkey might find they, they backed the wrong horse there, in which case, uh, you know, Erdogan's tone uh, towards uh, NATO might change quite significantly. But um, that that may be being uh, rather too optimistic. Uh, in, in, indeed, uh, although there is no uh, de-accession uh, plan uh, for uh, the alliance, and I don't even think, uh, Sash, really, the alliance has any mechanism to govern uh, that, right? I mean, uh, some of the yeah, jobs that Turkish... Uh, I tell you what, there wasn't for the European Union either. Uh, and then, you know, Britain did Brexit. And everybody had to come up with one rather rapidly. Didn't go well. Right, but... But but yes, but but there were articles that allowed it, whereas um, having had this conversation with NATO leaders, there are no mechanisms in the alliance to kick somebody out. 
nor necessarily to govern them. And again, many some of the staff jobs that Turkish officers took over were vacated by British staff officers uh, after the great contraction, uh, right? Because there was so much criticism that, oh, you know, Britain, you know, has only 24 ships and, you know, so many flag officers. The reason Britain had so many flag officers is they populated all the key staff jobs in the EU, in NATO, in the Five Eyes and elsewhere, uh, which was to Britain's advantage. And indeed, I would argue the alliance's collective advantage, alas. Um, unfortunately, we've, we've got to uh, keep uh, moving. Ron, you were at uh, eBase. Uh, it was obviously a big commercial aviation uh, week. China Eastern making its, uh, I, I said, first Chinese airline. It is the first airline at all to operate uh, the C919. That's majority American, as we discussed. Bonnie Glazer of the German Marshall Fund had a great graphic uh, showing you know, exactly how much of the airplane is Chinese and how much of the airplane comes from around the world. Uh, Sash, obviously, a uh, great note uh, on the uh, A320 that will not be modified to replace the A320, uh, as we saw uh, from uh, some news stories, and obviously Riyadh Air saying that it wants at least 150 737s. Ron, st start us off on eBay's and then kind of give us your sense uh, on as much of this that you want to bite to, because Sash, I was going to push the A320 the 220 onto you and Richard, the Riyadh Air uh, 737s uh, to you. Ron, start us off. Yeah, sure. Um, eBay's was a, was a fascinating show this year, right? Because uh, it's really the first show I've ever been at in our industry where you had activists who got on, got on campus, right? So a group of, I think they were Greenpeace folks, um, disguised themselves as airport, airport employees, got on bicycles, rode into the static area, and then started to chain themselves to landing gear of aircraft, tried to glue themselves to aircraft. Um, I guess I have been living under a rock or in some cave somewhere, but I didn't realize that gluing yourself to things in Europe has become a sport, uh, but it has. Um, and they were at it at, at eBay's. Now, the thing about that, that well, was the, the rebellion people, right, uh, have been doing this in London where they have been uh, gluing themselves to things. Have I got that right, Sash? Extinction, extinction rebellion, right, is good at gluing itself to things. But be yeah, gluing, unfortunately, is, 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 is a new form of, it, it's considered to be um, harder to defeat than just chaining yourself. Yeah, yes, ev ev evidently. I, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Ron. No, but not at all. Be, be that as it may, right? I mean, I, I haven't been following the, the latest in sort of how you rebel against things by gluing yourselves to them, but be that as it may. Um, that was going on at eBay's while we were doing meetings with various companies. And and. and a couple of things came out of that. And a natural question was, how is this impacting your business? The first takeaway from, I think, every OEM we spoke to is, it's not. Um, one OEM said, hey, you know what? Uh, those folks chaining themselves to our aircraft, they're actually not our customers. Uh, it's not who we focus on. Uh, and then another OEM told me that, yeah, we were still selling airplanes into the Nordics, um, where, I mean, I guess maybe fairly or unfairly is seen as an epicenter of all this stuff. Um, so, I mean, that was what a bigger takeaway for me is sort of like, you can fly private or I guess maybe by extension, you can fly on an airline. If you want to fly, you're still going to fly regardless of what people are gluing themselves to, uh, which isn't maybe what I would have expected, but that's what, how it, how it played out. So I think that was very interesting. Um, first point, second point, I think we all kind of know the industry is cool and, you know, and different companies have different ways of framing it. It's, it's normalizing, it's calming, it's, but you know, the, the industry is coming back to a, a more regular cadence. Um, there was a, a lot of talk at the show around, you know, what's going to happen with VistaJet, uh, what's going to happen with Wheels Up. Uh, VistaJet was a, was a real, you know, real big topic because they have a, a fleet of, 
of very large business jets, right? So they've got a bunch of globals and uh, 7,500s and 6,000s. And if all those things were to hit the market at the same time, um, that would be disruptive to everybody, not just Bombardier. But 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 we'll see. I mean, I think it was an open question and what's going on there. But that was clearly a point of topic. Uh, and then you know, a couple other you know, quick points. I uh, got to tour the Global 700. Uh, no, excuse me, not the Global, excuse me. The G700 and the G800. Uh, both beautiful aircraft. The G800 I got to climb around on was a flight test airplane. It's actually huge, big, big, big airplane. Um, and the 700 is you know, pretty spectacular. And it seems like uh, Gulfstream is on the verge of getting that thing certified. It's just, there's, it seems like there's just some little stuff that the FAA has got to do on their side. And then, then the airplane will be certified. Um, Textron launched the Ascend, which is the next in the XLS family. Um, broadly, all the conversations we had, people were very positive about it. And it's got a Garmin flight deck, which is a big change for them. And uh, a flat floor. It doesn't have a floor where the seats are on one level and then you kind of step down. Uh, but broadly, it was it's just very positive reviews of it from people we were talking to. And then finally, we got a, a, a nice opportunity to interact with the team at GE that's doing the Catalyst engine. And to be blunt, I walked away actually reasonably impressed. I mean, they're... They are um, very cognizant of the fact that they are up against a you know a a, a, a wall of PT six engines from Pratt and Whitney, uh, and the only way to get at that is with technology and so on and so forth. Right. And it, it seems like they're really up for that challenge and and getting at it. So um, it was a I think ultimately a very productive show. Uh, I had a fascinating talk with the team at uh, GE. Uh, when we uh, visited, uh, when I visited Evendale a little while ago, uh, and uh, look forward to to bringing some of those uh, stories uh, ahead. Uh, Sash, uh, go ahead and also lead us off on uh, the no A320 mods to uh, replace the A320, uh, the A320, correct? Go ahead. Um, yeah, I mean, just to follow on from Ron, and uh, you know, I think the points you've made about you know, a series of different terms to describe a, a slightly slowing or normalizing market. The one that I was sort of particularly interested by was um, Dasso, which we cover, Dasso Aviation. And um, Eric Chapier, the CEO, actually, I thought was remarkably um, blunt uh, on this. I mean, he, um, he just said this gro the growth spurt that occurred after COVID uh, started to slow down during the last quarter of 2022 with a continued slowdown in the first half of this year. And then he said, and we're still having supply chain problems. Um, didn't make it clear whether the supply chain problems just affect the Falcon business jet line or are affecting the, the Rafale fighter line. Although I suspect, given how integrated Dasso is, that it's very hard to separate those two businesses uh, out in terms of supply chain. But it was a, you know, a, a good for him. He, he tells it as he sees it. Um, he's not terribly worried about the short-term performance of his share price, but he thinks it's right to tell all the stakeholders where they are. Um, and I think it's going to make, it, 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 it really does inform how we talk to these companies at the Paris Air Show uh, in cranky, nearly uh, three weeks time. Uh, I think we're going to have much better dis discussions with companies three weeks time because they've already started talking about things uh, this openly at eBay. Uh, and uh, the A220 uh, uh, not being modified to replace the 320 as uh, some news yeah. stories have suggested a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, this was a, um, uh, this was a, an article out from um, Reuters, who are always pretty well informed. Um, I mean, Airbus has been very clear that they want to do another stretch of the A220, the former Bombardier C series, um, you know, provisionally referred to as the A22500, and that such a stretch would take them well and truly above 150 seats of capacity and would 
you know, uh, in performance terms, uh, pretty much overlap with maybe even uh, surpass the existing A320 Neo in terms of performance. And so one of the worries has been uh, by you know, investors, but also by airlines, airlines um, if Airbus launches this A22500, isn't that going to um, obsolete a big chunk of their A320 uh, backlog, cause some airlines to switch from A320s to A220s, um, and you know, possibly even lo- lose them some sales? And how does that change the the balance of the narrowbody market once Airbus is offering, you know, two aircraft which which are overlapping at around 150 seats. Um, the certainly the story that came out this week. Um, Airbus seemed to be backpedaling on that. Uh, although I st- I take all of this with a pinch of salt, and there's a lot of spin going on at the moment. Um, and if they did come out with an A22500 launch at the Paris Air Show, I wouldn't be, you know, massively surprised. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the big issue that they do have is, again, supply chain. The A3, the A, sorry, the A220 is certainly on our estimation, the worst performing Airbus uh, product in terms of production rate at the moment. They can't get the production rate out. They can't get aircraft out of the hangar doors, um, either at Mirabel or Mobile at the rate that they've been promising. It may get better in six to nine months, but it sure as hell hasn't done uh, last, uh, last year, 2022, or the first half of this year. And I think they just think that they can't launch a new program and divert their management's time from sorting out the, the current A220, uh, 300 and 100 variants. Um, they're gonna have to have to wait three, six months or so. Um, I'm, I'm in no doubt that they will launch the A220. When they do, it's gonna change the way that we look at the narrow body market because then the narrow body market will have two fundamentally different models in it uh, from Airbus. And I think that's going to, you know, that may create opportunities for Boeing, but it may put a lot of pressure on the the, the lower end, the 150 seat and lower market. Uh, Richard, uh, give us your sense on all of this and uh, how seriously you take the Riyadh Air order for uh, at least 150 737s. Ah, so much to discuss. You know, just quickly, yeah, eBay is clearly we're coming to terms with a normalizing market. What's interesting is that in terms of product development, there's this big disconnect. There's so much coming out at the top, you know, uh, the G700, G800, uh, you know, versions of the 7500 to come, and most importantly, the Falcon 10X. Um, yet, gee, so much of the commercial action is actually taking or has been taking place in the small and mid-sized cabin where the big news was this SN with a flat floor. Uh, you know, and the big deal was the Praetor, which has been around for a decade and good for Embraer. It was a heck of a nice score, but it reflected the commoditization of that small to mid cabin market. So, you know, about the only thing new that, that's new in high tech in, in the smaller uh, size class, uh, classes is that the catalyst engine that, that Ron talked about, that's, that's interesting, but nobody else is putting money into the small and midsize section. It's kind of interesting. I, I guess it does reflect that commoditization. Completely agree with Ron. It's just a matter of time before they do the 220-500. Uh, just a question of timing to avoid cannibalization and of course, product definition to make sure they balance that need between timing, range, economics, and, and cannibalization and whatever else. Will it happen at Paris? Can't rule it out, but yeah, more likely it sounds like it's gonna slip a bit. Uh, then finally, yeah, you know, everyone wants the same traffic. Uh, that's it's, it's kind of <laughs> extraordinary how much news flow there has been in that you know, that same traffic zone. And I, I include uh, Indian, uh, Air India for that. Um, because, you know, basically years and years ago, the three Gulf super connectors got a whole bunch of traffic, uh, including to India, including, you know, uh, super connectors through the Middle East. And uh, 
Turkish uh, wants some of that. The Saudis want some of that. India wants some of that. But, you know, ultimately it's the same traffic. So it all looks a little bit, again, cannibalistic. Uh, Ron, let's go to you because you're the PhD aerodynamicist and airplane uh, guy. Um, Frank Kendall, uh, Air Force uh, Secretary, uh, a man uh, who's an engineer and also knows his way around programs, noted uh, that uh, digital design is is critical, but also no panacea, uh, right? Because all those people saying, oh, you know, model-based design, and it's completely game-changing. And he pointed to the uh, T7, uh, is my understanding, uh, last week and sort of said, look, it's it's great, but it's it's not the be-all, uh, end-all. And, and there are some folks, um, and I think you and I have discussed this, right? The more modeling you can do, the more modeling you tend to do, so it can actually move things more slowly than than you would have. You know what I mean? You can test more easily, so you test more things. Uh, from from your standpoint, uh, what are right? I mean, what what are what are what are your thoughts and takeaways on on that, and what it means for programs and an ability to go faster or not? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think Secretary Kendall is one hundred percent right. Um, if you just think about uh, air, aircraft design not that long ago um, loft lines were done on large sheets of paper in in aircraft hangars right so we've we've moved from that um, a long time ago to you know computer-aided design uh, and then you know integrating computer-aided design into dynamic models that are both uh, you know aircraft in in flight or doing a mission to you know fabricating aircraft and doing all kinds of things um, does it is it a tool that can be helpful? Yeah, but it's still a tool and it's a tool. All those models have to be, you know, A, built by people and built correctly. You can mess the models up uh, too. And then they all have to be in- informed by data and the data has to be the right data entered properly, put in the model right. And then everything has to be linked up right. So there's a lot of area for things to go wrong, but if you do it right, you can do really interesting things that you could never do before that can speed things up. So, for example, uh, on a on an airplane, you can you can design multiple wings, fly them in a wind tunnel, you know, all virtual, uh, and do that in a continuous process, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, and you can crank out a lot of analysis that you couldn't do before. But it always gets back to, hey, is it right? Uh, you know, are are the inputs right? And, and in the end, it's all run by people. So, if you put sort of blind faith in the digital model, you will you know lead yourself down. Um, kind of the wrong path. But if you use these models uh, and this technology in the right way, yes, it can be you know, very, very, very um, uh, helpful. It can right. help you be more efficient and so on and so forth. But in and of itself, you, it's, it's not the answer. It's yet another tool in your quiver of tools to help you get to the answer. And what I've worried about for years when, when companies say, it's a digital thread, this, that, blah, 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 blah. Well, stop, stop for a minute. How are you applying the tool? Who's applying it? Are you doing it the right way? Are you using the right data? So on and so forth. So, so I think it's a, I think he's right. It's not a panacea, but, but it is a really useful technology that can help. Uh, in, uh, indeed, uh, really quick, uh, Sash and Richard, and then I'm going to go to Sash. Uh, one last question on the, the CB90 and what's uh, next uh, for the war. But you had something you wanted to add, uh, Sash. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I just wanted to, to say that I do think that the specific problems with the T7 uh, uh, Red Hawk trainer are a function of the fact that Boeing and uh, Saab's digital systems are clearly not perfectly compatible. I don't know, I just don't understand why. But um, 
in its sub sub supplies a risk fuselage to the air, to the uh, that is um, by all you know by all accounts you know fits absolutely perfectly and the problems seem to be occurring forward of that whenever Saab has done um, you know digital transfer particularly for example on the Grip and E program uh, and to the Brazilian assembly line and so forth it has it has it's worked perfectly well but um, some of the problems appear to be an incompatibility between Saab and Boeing. Uh, and in that respect, this reminds me, and it's very distressing, because this reminds me of the Airbus A380, and I'm not saying that just to wind Richard up, although I'm fairly sure it will do that. But this is, you know, the, the problems of the A380 were, the, were a function of the fact that although um, uh, the, the German side of Airbus and the French side of Airbus were both in Airbus, they seem to have strangely incompatible digital systems, such that when stuff arrived uh, in Hamburg, uh, it didn't. Uh, it didn't fit, and when stuff arrived from Hamburg to Toulouse, it didn't fit perfectly. Uh, and this, you know, it seems to me, it's, it's the intercompany um, uh, handover of data that is some of the harder bits to get right, and it's giving digital design a really bad name. Uh, Richard, uh, your uh, take, and then uh, Ron, real quick, and then we'll end it uh, with the war. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, on digitization, I think one of the tenets of futurism is that uh, all of a sudden something happened that it never had an equivalent before, you know, the classic being Segway. We'd never been able to ride around in anything until Segway was invented. And, you know, the latest round of digital tools, MBSE and whatever else, um, should be seen as building upon previous digital tools, CAD, CAM, and CATIA, and generation after generation of impressive capabilities all of which did really nothing to shorten development times or lower development costs. I mean, I'm not saying they aren't useless. You know, obviously Ron's got a great point and it's how you use it. And I'm sure it has given people valuable new tools in terms of uh, elaborating new variants and whatever else. But in terms of controlling the cost and time and development, uh, there's absolutely no evidence over decades of digitization that it has any help, what, that doesn't any help whatsoever. So why should this be different? Um, all, all I have to say is with slide rules, we were building rockets and submarines and things like that and actually moving them along pretty, uh, pretty, pretty quickly. Uh, right, Ron, uh, exactly. last word on exactly this before right. we move on. Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is all important stuff, but in, in very, very simple terms. Um, before the days of spreadsheets, you did a financial model on paper. Now, if you look at a financial model of a company in Excel, as an example, it's a fully digital model where you can do simulations and so on and so forth. But that that Excel model is only as good as the model you built and the assumptions you put in it. And it's no different with any of this stuff. And you know the, the, the point with the A380, the point with the T7A, that's a, a, a data and interface issue, right? These things are only as good as the data that goes in them and how you interface things. And it can be everything from how you know a, an arrow structure uh, interacts with uh, a dynamic model and so on and so forth. So uh, there's a lot of a lot of subtlety to it, but I can make and so could Sash. And we could make a really good model in Excel, or you can make a really bad model in Excel. And Excel is just a tool. Uh, it's uh, very much the garbage in, uh, garbage out, uh, Geigo model. Um, Sash uh, orders uh, more orders for Swedish industry. Saab's done very well with Global Eye. Obviously, Poland uh, ordering them. We discussed that a little while ago. Czech Republic following with uh, a 2.4 billion dollar order for CV90s from Haglunds, uh, obviously uh, in Sweden, but a BAE uh, company. Uh, kind of walk us through and what your expectations are of the war. Right, uh, Ukraine signaling the offensive is about to start. The mud still, the ground's still muddy, and guys like Prigozhin warning uh, that, you know, it's time for Russia to go 
full North Korea uh, and win this uh, with great hardship to the people. Otherwise, Russia is going to fall apart and we're going to have another Russian revolution. We discussed that on Friday's uh, show a little bit. Anyway, give us give us your sense before we as we as we wrap up uh, this Memorial Day program. Go ahead. Yeah. OK. First of all, I mean, the um, the BAE Hagelin's order for CV-90 and CV-90 is um, objectively, the most successful European infantry fighting vehicle. Uh, Hegelins has now sold well over a thousand of them uh, to, I'm trying to remember now, probably nine or ten different uh, different countries. It's cascaded to a lot of uh, smaller companies over the years. They're now up to the Mark IV variant of it. Uh, so it's been upgraded. It's, it's a bit younger than the than the Bradley as a vehicle, but it's been upgraded as many times. It's a highly capable infantry fighting vehicle. And uh, the Czech Republic has been looking for infantry fighting vehicles and holding running a competition for about five years. So this is this precedes the Ukraine war. But they they down selected uh, last year, as did Slovakia. Um, and they signed the order, as you say. An interesting thing about it is. The number of vehicles is at the absolute top end of what was expected. Um, they had originally said that they were going to buy about 210, and in fact, they're ordering nearly 250. So they, they um, exercised the option uh, within the contract uh, immediately. And the value is at the top end. You know, these are 9 uh, million euro vehicles. These are very, very expensive. Th this is a, a value that you are priced that we would have historically thought was what you paid for a main battle tank. It's becoming very apparent now that a brand new main battle tank is in the high teens, and an infantry fighting vehicle is pushing 10 million uh, bucks, euros, your currency of your choice, uh, every time you do it. This is part of the, um, uh, the rearmament of Central and Eastern Europe. The transfer or the change from former Russian equipment, you know, the Czech Republic still has a whole bunch of BMPs, T-72s and T-72 lookalikes, and they are gradually uh, shifting from those to Western and particularly European uh, supplied vehicles. And I think, we, you know, we're going to see more uh, more uh, competitions uh, like this, um, and you know, gradually, Eastern Europe is going to, you know, come up with armed armored forces that are very, very modern and capable indeed. They may not be as big as they used to be, but they'll be a hell of a lot more capable. Um, and in the process, they'll probably transfer a whole load of the older stuff to Ukraine because they can use it right now. Um, you know, the war in Ukraine. I, I'm, I am uh, continuing to be surprised. Uh, and really interested by the degree to which um, this is a war where so many intents, so many actions are telegraphed in advance. Uh, you know, the information war is more interesting in some respects than the ground war. Uh, nobody in the past would have, started, would have uh, told people when the offensive, wherever it is, is due to happen. But of course, what it's doing is play, playing with your enemy's mind. You say the offensive is going to uh, start this week, say, and your enemy says, so where's it happening? And you, you know, you put the enemy off balance, in this case, Russia, you've got all the, we've got all these incursions by supposed Russian separatists. Uh, the Russians don't know whether that's part of the offensive or whether that's a part of the deception plan or whatever. Um, I, I tend to discount a lot of what comes out of Ukraine. We have to accept that they are fighting their war on their terms. Uh, if we didn't see a massive move of armoured forces in the next two weeks, listen, it's their country, it's their war, it's definitely their lives. But at the moment, they're telegra telegraphing very clearly that, that you know, uh, they, will, they will start their counteroffensive. If it happens, we should expect to see a lot of probing on a very, very wide front before they finally either decide or commit to a, uh, to a particular uh, stage of action. It's causing the Russians significant political stress. Um, uh, you know, the fact that there were incursions on uh, stretches of border that the Russians thought were 
if not impregnable, certainly perfectly well defended and, and not where anything's going to happen. I, that, that's caused a lot of distress uh, politically in Russia. And in that respect, Ukrainians are playing this one entirely right. Um, will the Russians uh, react, overreact as much as they're claiming? Probably not. Uh, but they want us to believe they will. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. An absolute pleasure, uh, especially on this holiday uh, weekend. Hope you guys uh, have a uh, great rest of the day and looking forward and have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vago. And happy holidays to you all. Yeah, great to be on, Vago, and uh, best to all. And a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Tune in for tomorrow's program with Sam Bendet of the Center for uh, Naval Analyses to discuss the latest on the war and uh, a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind with Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners. Thanks again and have a great day.